to Marsh. I know I'm supposed to help you, but I can't. Instead of being your support, I'm your weight. Life is very heavy to me, and it is so light to you. Some writers are free to write what they like, their abilities only restricted by their imaginations. Other writers are thwarted by the societies in which they live, and their abilities wither on the vine. Yet other writers have such passion that their imaginations slip beyond the nets of their oppressors. Think of James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain, Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart, July's People by Nadine Gordimer, Wild Swans by Jung Shang, and Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Likeness of Being. I hope you didn't mind leaving that place. Just the opposite. I like to leave places. I like to leave. <laughs> so, I hope you're not having a bad time. Oh, not at all, no. But I have a train to catch in an hour. I'm giving a lecture in Torino tomorrow. And... You travel by train? Always. I love trains. They are so erotic. While all those novels were born out of personal experience, it is somewhat curious that in Kundera's case, he adopted a form that sought to break the spell that readers just might believe what they were reading. Briefly, and for what it's worth, Kundera's plot concerns four people and a dog, all living, loving, and trying to survive in communist Czechoslovakia during the late 1960s. But that hardly hints at the way Kundera wrote his story. Authors have been dismantling narrative for centuries, each aiming to break apart the artifice of storytelling itself. So, we have been given fragmented narratives with non-linear plots, streams of consciousness, unreliable narrators and multiple narrators, as well as metafiction, all designed to expose a story's illusion. Lawrence Stern, Luigi Pirandello and Vladimir Nabokov did so with the aim of expanding and exploring the limits of narrative fiction. When Kundera wrote his novel, he, by that I mean both the author and the narrator, slipped between an omniscient voice to the character's individual voices, each of whom seemed to be aware that they exist within a fiction. Consider this. And once more I see him the way he appeared to me at the very beginning of the novel standing at the window and staring across the courtyard at the walls opposite. This is the image from which he was born. As I have pointed out before, the characters are not born like people, of woman. They are born of a situation, a sentence, a metaphor, containing in a nutshell a basic human possibility that the author thinks no one else has discovered or said something essential about. But isn't it true that an author can write only about himself? In other words, Kundera wrote a story only as much as he was writing about writing itself. All of which compels me to ask, just how do you go about turning all that self-reflexivity into a movie? Is the novel not better left on the table, its pages open for the reader but closed to the camera? While not the most original of ideas, one way would be to have a disembodied narrator express those ideas. But, since film is partially a visual medium, the guiding principle is to show and not tell. 
but we listen to film as much as we watch it. So why not have the narrator tell us one thing and show us something else? That way, the film can communicate the idea while simultaneously examining the way film communicates through constructing its artifice. But that sounds more like an academic essay than it does a drama. If I had two lives, in one life I could invite her to stay at my place, and in the second life I could kick her out. Then I could compare and see which had been the best thing to do. But we only live once. Life so light. It's like an outline we can't ever fill in or correct, make any better. It's frightening. When Philip Kaufman read Kundera's novel, he was hot off writing and directing a multi-Oscar winning adaptation of Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, a non-fiction account of America's space program. Before that, Kaufman was one of the screenwriters on Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. And before that, he had directed a second adaptation of Jack Finney's sci-fi horror novel, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. What I'm highlighting here is Kaufman's versatility. So, after having secured the rights, the first thing he did was engage with fellow screenwriter Jean-Claude Carrier. Carrier is one of the greatest scriptwriters cinema has ever seen. Not only has he received almost every major award the industry has to offer, he has also collaborated with some of its greatest directors, Louis Bunuel, André Vaidja, Volker Schlondorf, Milos Forman and Louis Mal, and on some of the greatest films ever made, Belle de Jour, Danton and The Tin Drum. Kaufman and Carrier largely dispensed with Kundera's philosophical prose, and instead focused on the love stories between his four main characters allowing them only briefly to verbalise Kundera's philosophical underpinnings. Instead, the film dramatises love, carnal pleasure, political commitment, emotional evasion and a bowler hat. The hat. Comes from my grandfather's grandfather. He lived alone long time ago. In the three leads, you have Daniel Day-Lewis as Tomasz, a womanising doctor, his lover Sabina, a free-spirited artist played by Lena Olin, and Teresa, played by Juliette Benoche, an innocent country girl who, despite knowing of Tomasz's philandering, eventually marries him. The fourth main character in the novel, Franz, played by Derek DeLint, is given short shrift in the film, relegated to a lovelorn idealist. When I was a student in Paris, I liked the demonstrations, the marches, the crowds, the shouting. I liked to be part of it. Mm. The whole world looked like a grand march to me, ever onward to a better world. Each of them pursues their own lightness of being, the freedom that supposedly comes with love the sort of freedom secured by escaping the past and political oppression. Kaufman captures this by having his characters regularly removing their clothes to not just reveal their personalities, but also to prove that under such circumstances, because love is a personal choice, it can also be an act of political dissent. But consider this. 
making love is not just a physical act. It is also a form of emotional occupation. Put it another way, emotional colonization. And once you admit that, you're into all sorts of imperialism, which is what the Soviet Union had inflicted upon Czechoslovakia. But either way, while Kaufman made much of the concept of nakedness, he doesn't always deliver it in a democratic way. However pleasurable it is to see Sabina cavorting over a mirror in nothing but her lingerie and that bowler hat, censorship still prevails and the men always maintain their modesty. I've heard so much about you. And suddenly when I saw you, I said to myself, what a coincidence. He's the one who can help me. Of course, I'll pay for the consultation. I've had a pain in my back for a few months, and I would like to get your opinion about it. Take off your clothes. So not all of the film works, but there is one sequence in which Kaufman's film alludes to and finds a parallel to Kundera's self-reflexive form. It is the account of the Soviet Armed Forces invasion of Prague in August 68. There was no way the film's budget could extend to faithfully reenact the event. Not even Sol Zance, the multi-Oscar winning producer who had spun gold from one flow of the cuckoo's nest and Amadeus, could wrestle the necessary funds away from the studio. So instead, Kaufman and his cinematographer Sven Nyquist brilliantly conceived and audaciously realised a scheme whereby they would use real-life footage from Prague in 68 and intercut it with footage filmed specifically for the film some 20 years later. Using a variety of different film stocks, 35 and 16 mil, and moving from grainy black and white to full blown out color, Kaufman's idea exposes the artifice of the story while simultaneously drawing you into the drama. It does this so effectively that the only way to differentiate between the real and the simulated is when you see either Day-Lewis or Binoche on screen. Edited by the master Walter Murch, you get a clear sense of the chaos and mourning, that the likeness of being is being crushed by the darkness of history. After all the love and loss, Kaufman gives us a bittersweet ending, a return to the Garden of Eden. Is Tomasz's happiness just part of the film's artifice? Does the likeness truly survive? Perhaps 
it really only ever existed as a fiction. <laughs>